0: chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, uh, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. If you get their attention, they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked right to our passage this morning. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Two verses in Revelation chapter 6 that encapsulate the initial unveiling of the Antichrist during the tribulation period. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now, when I saw the Lamb opened... Uh, now. I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We never, ever lose our awe over the privilege of being able to open it up and to have it accomplish and do in each one of us what it alone can do and the supernatural power of it in our life. We pray that you would sanctify us by your truth today. Lord, there's a lot of unsanctification that wants to attach itself not only to our doing, Lord, but also to our thinking and our feeling in the course of life. And we pray that your word would touch all of those areas of our life today. We pray that you would continue to use it to thoroughly furnish us unto every good work, your call, your purposes upon our life. And we pray that you would use it to increase our faith, Lord, as we come to know you and your ways better Your Word says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And we pray that Your Word would do all of that and more in our lives this morning. We pray that You'd freshly fill us with Your Holy Spirit, give us a supernatural capacity to absorb Your truth today, to enjoy it, Lord, to experience it as it comes forth from Your Word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning I want to continue our series, short series, on what the Bible declares will be the condition of the world in the last days, and the last days referring to those days in human history that immediately precede uh, Jesus' return. We have already examined Israel's rebirth as a nation, the great battle surrounding her that will occur in the last days as it's recorded in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. Last week we uh, examined the potential of a world-dominating empire rising up out of the old Roman Empire uh, as Daniel recorded it in uh, Daniel chapter 2. And this morning I want to continue this series by examining this very significant figure who will lead this revived Roman Empire uh, into power and then bring ultimately such terrible destruction upon the world. He is known most often in the Bible by the title of the beast, but within our culture, he is most commonly known as the Antichrist. And so that's the title we'll use for him in the course of the study. And this overview of the Antichrist will come variously the uh, passages supporting it from Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Revelation 9, Revelation 13, elsewhere in the Bible. We learn from the Bible that he will one day burst upon the world scene as a result of Jesus breaking the first of seven seals that are on a scroll that constitutes the title deed uh, to planet earth and that the breaking of those seven seals in Revelation that occurs in Revelation chapter 6, the breaking of those seals, each one of them constitutes the wrath of God, the wrath of God being poured out upon the world during a seven-year period known as the tribulation period. And because these seals, seven seals represent the wrath of God, I believe that we as the church will be raptured or removed from the earth prior to this event uh, because the Bible plainly teaches that as Christians we are not appointed unto God's wrath. In the world we will have tribulation, Jesus said, but that's tribulation from the fall, from the world. Uh, from the devil. That's from other people. But we're never appointed as Christians to incur uh, God's wrath. We're not appointed to it. The Antichrist will not come into the world of his own will and in his own timing. He will be unveiled to the world, and he will rise to prominence only as Jesus breaks that seal and allows him to do so. God is in control of the entire. Uh, scene that that occurs. He is not in charge. The Antichrist is not in charge ultimately of anything. The Bible teaches that he will be a man, but he will be controlled by the devil. He will be satanically directed and empowered. Uh, We see people that, you know, and think about uh, demon possession and casting demons out of people and so forth. And Jesus said there are certain demons that come inside of people by, for whom that demon can only be cast out through prayer and through fasting. And so there's a whole hierarchy of demonic beings, much like our military has a whole hierarchy of, of authority. And uh, uh, imagine, you know, as you can deal with the fierceness of casting a demon or dealing with a demon that is inside of a human being that is of lesser authority. With the Antichrist, it will be Satan himself himself that will possess this man and, uh, and lead him uh, out into uh, controlling him, and, and this Antichrist will be controlled by the absolute purest uh, evil possible. I think that sometimes people can tend to think that the Antichrist will be uh, easily recognizable, that it'll have, he, w- he won't have proper pupils Uh, You'll be able to look and they will be oblong or something, you know, squares or something like that, or that there'll be some kind of quirky little thing about him that gives himself away. I've never seen any of the movies that have been uh, made about him. I am a little bit embittered by the fact that some of them uh, chose to use my name for the Antichrist, uh, which scares people uh, at least a little bit. They're a little uncomfortable around me for a couple of weeks until... But the Antichrist will not be, you know, recklessly or obviously demonic. He won't have this wild demonic look in his eyes. Uh, For the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, he will be astonishing. He will be what everyone dreams that uh, they could be, that a human being could be, that a leader would be. He'll be astonishing in his presence, in his power, the magnetism of his life, his ability to persuade. And here you are, and I love to read history, and I know some of you do as well. You can take all of the greatest leaders in man's history and roll them all together. And all of their charisma, all of their talents and skills and abilities that rose to the surface at some particular crucial moment in human history and how uh, they were used to turn back some kind of a tide, and yet all of them put together will not approach this man's abilities. And when the world sets their eyes on him and listens to his ideas, they will be totally and completely intoxicated uh, by him, by his charisma, by his ideas, his physical presence, his uh, will be. Uh, extraordinary, how he presents himself will be the same. People will look at him and say, that's the kind of person I want to be. That's certainly the kind of person I want to follow. And his power and his influence over people will be fully supernatural. It will be way beyond what anyone uh, can be or will be uh, purely natural. And through him, Satan will come as an angel of light And for the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, for anyone to rise up and declare that this man is evil or that this man is of darkness or that he is of the devil, uh, that person would be considered uh, fully and certifiably insane. This morning, I want us to examine three significant uh, marks of his reign biblically. First, As we studied last week, he's going to lead a revived Roman Empire into world dominance. And it's interesting, as you read in Revelation chapter 6 verse 2, that when he is released to begin his seven years of mischief, he is described as going forth on a white horse. That is, he's going to give the appearance of being good, of being the good guy, when in fact he will be the personification of evil. He will come into the world scene, giving the appearance that he is a man of peace. You notice, too, that a crown was given to him. Uh, This suggests that he is going to be a ruler. He is going forth to rule. He also goes out, we're told, conquering and to conquer. In other words, world domination is his goal. Fascinatingly, we're also told that he's armed only with a bow, no arrows, only with a bow, and initially uh, indicating that initially he will accomplish world domination without the use of weapons, without the use of force. He will do it through charisma, diplomacy. He will do it through words and answers to mankind's problems. He does not do it through violence, though later on, once he comes into his position of power, he will not be hesitant to use military force and to use violence to uh, uh, hold on to his uh, power. It appears that uh, he will gain the trust and the control of uh, this revived Roman Empire of Europe without the use of force. And we know from Revelation chapter 17, verses 12 and 13, I give that to you for those that will listen to this later and look the verses all up. The leaders of the ten nations out of Europe will be completely seduced by him, by his rhetoric, by his physical presentation, by his charisma, and they'll be completely convinced that he is the answer to all of their problems, that this is the one that we've been looking for now to lead us into greatness. And again, as we studied last week, I am inclined to believe that part of this, turning over such power, such sovereignty to a single man on the part of these ten uh, kings or these ten uh, leaders, I believe that uh, all of that is going to be because of a desperation on some part Uh, that the leaders are feeling, that uh, this desperation to find someone with the charisma, someone with the answers to the problems that they are facing, and then the ability to lead them out of their problems. Now, you think about how effortless it would be for a supernaturally charismatic leader who has Satan's insights into fallenness, Uh, Satan, if he is nothing else, he is a student of mankind. And uh, here is Satan with the ability to look at mankind. He knows us inside and out. He knows how easy it is to manipulate us and to uh, deceive us and so forth. Imagine here a leader who has this uh, demonic capacity and, and... and, uh, and knows exactly from the demonic realm uh, what to tell people. He knows what they will want to hear, and then to do that in order to be elected or appointed. And uh, can you doubt, I think, that that wouldn't happen today, especially if the world was in a chaotic condition uh, due to worldwide war or a worldwide economic collapse. And in in the event of either of those scenarios, or even a different scenario, the whole world would begin to look for someone on a white horse that can lift us up out of the circumstance that we find ourselves in. And especially in Europe, where it is very, very post-Christian, it has long ago abandoned its Christian foundation, its uh, Christian worldview in favor of a secular one. You add the rapture of the church prior to all of this will then be the removal of any true Christian influence in Europe and elsewhere, and the more desperate the situation gets and the more fear begins to prevail, the more likely people are to pin their hopes on some man riding in on a white horse who promises to make everything better." Uh, Desperate times produce desperate people. And in my lifetime, the world, for all of its problems, has enjoyed relative peace. I wasn't alive during the two world wars. There have been a lot of ups and downs. But to know anything about history is to understand how desperate uh, a circumstance can come in the world and how desperate people can be uh, to uh, give power and authority to someone that they think will lead them out. Currently, Europe as a whole doesn't want answers from God. Uh, They do not follow God as a continent, and uh, it is given mostly to admiring and following what it esteems to be uh, great human beings. The answer to man's problems are found in man and not in the God of the Bible. And the Antichrist is going to give them all of that in more than they could imagine for three and a half years, and then after that, he's going to lead them into a demonic nightmare. I think that second in terms of what the Antichrist is going to accomplish that's important to understand, and very significantly, second and significantly, is that he will enter into a covenant treaty with the nation of Israel. He will gain the trust and he will gain the control of Israel, again, without the use of force. Initially, he is going to appear to be a great friend uh, to the nation of Israel and to the Jewish people. We know from Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, that the Antichrist is going to make a covenant, that is a treaty, an agreement uh, with the Jews. And he is going to allow them once again to offer sacrifices and offerings to the Lord, which of course is going to require the rebuilding of a temple, and he will allow them to be able to uh, give them the permission to rebuild that temple. What is the great obstacle to the Jews rebuilding the temple on the Temple Mount today? It's called uh, the Dome of the Rock Mosque and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. It's called World War III. That's why they don't build it there. And, uh, but in the timeline, as we looked in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, if that attack by Gog and Magog and its allies made up of Muslim nations uh, attacks Israel before the beginning of the Great Tribulation, then uh, they're going to get punched in the nose by God, and their armies are going to be destroyed, seven-eighths of each of their armies, their homelands will be uh, destroyed and judged by God. What that will do is it will humble Islam. It will be a setback for Islam and also for Russia. And uh, one of the problems that, you know, in looking at how in the world can, uh, you know, Europe become the world-ruling empire, something has to happen in the United States, something has to happen to Russia, and uh, and this, uh, you know, pushing back of Russia, this uh, humbling of the Islamic nations then allows the Antichrist, in my mind, at the very beginning of the seven-year tribulation period to come forward in that uh, moment in time, offer the Jews the opportunity uh, to rebuild their temple without the Islamic nations squawking too much uh, because that's the price of defeat in, in war. Now but three and a half years into this covenant that he makes with the Jews, the Antichrist is going to break his covenant, his agreement with them. And he's going to commit what is called the abomination that causes desolation and uh, that will make the newly rebuilt temple desolate. It will, ma- it will defile it hopelessly. This is known, again, in the Bible as the abomination that causes desolation. One day at the three-and-a-half-year mark of the tribula- seven-year tribulation... He will walk into the Holy of Holies. For those of you who know something about the Old Testament and the temple and the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies and the sacrifices and the furnishings and so forth... The holy of holies in the temple represents the very presence of God. It is the holiest part of a very holy structure. And he will walk into the holy of holies. He will sit down, and then he will demand to be… He will declare himself to be God, and then he will demand to be worshipped as God by both the Jews and by the world, by the uh, Gentiles. And uh, Daniel chapter 9, 2 uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, Revelation chapter 13, all speak of this abomination that causes desolation. The morning that the Antichrist does that, then the, every Jewish heart in the world is going to sink, and they will realize that they've been totally deceived by this man. And thus Jesus gives His warning in Matthew chapter 24 that when the Jews see this happen, that they are to run for their lives. He doesn't speak to the church. He's speaking to Jews. The language is filled with uh, Jewish imagery. Jesus said, "'Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation "'spoken of by Daniel the prophet, "'standing in the holy place, "'whoever reads, let him understand. "'Let those who are in Judea,' that is, Jews,' Flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Don't take even an extra second. Get out of Jerusalem and out of Israel as fast as you can. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes but woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days pray that your flight may not be in winter nor on the sabbath again that is a reference to Jews during the tribulation period not the church we don't have a concern about the sabbath for then there will be great tribulation such as not been uh, since the beginning of the world until this time no nor ever shall be because at this particular point in time, after the abomination that causes desolation, the reaction of the Jews, the Antichrist will then at that point, having gone forth to conquer uh, and uh, as much as he's wanted to conquer, he will then show his true color toward the Jews, and he'll begin a very demonic and murderous persecution of the Jews, and that's recorded in Revelation uh, chapter 12. And unfortunately, uh, the issue. The nation of Israel is completely set up for this deception today. By and large, the Jewish religious establishment and Jews in general do not accept Jesus as their promised Messiah. Their main sticking point, the main reason for which they reject Jesus as their Messiah was Jesus' claims to be the Son of God. His claim to, as a result of that, to be divine. What they believe about the Messiah, uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, they believe that the Messiah will not be divine, and he will not be the Son of God, but he will merely be another man like Moses. But to hold that view as they do is to ignore the further revelation of the Messiah that fills the Old Testament Scriptures, which plainly declare that the Messiah would indeed be the Son of God when he came into the world and that he would claim to be divine so that nobody would be surprised when he showed up on the scene and declared that of himself. I'll give you a smattering of those verses that deal with that. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, speaking of the coming Messiah, for unto us a child is born. This speaks of Messiah's humanity. Unto us a son is given, the Son of God. This speaks to his deity. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. The Messiah will be born of a virgin. But then Isaiah wrote further by the Spirit of God, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. In Psalm 2, David writes this by the Spirit of God. And... uh, and in verse 7, I will declare the decree. Uh, the Lord has said to me, this is Messiah speaking to the Father. The Lord has declared, to, has said to me, You are my son. "'Today I have begotten you. "'Ask of me and I will give you the nations "'for your inheritance "'and the ends of the earth for your possession. "'You shall break them with a rod of iron. "'You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. "'Now therefore be wise, O kings. "'Be instructed, you judges of the earth. uh, "'Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling.' Kiss the son the father says concerning the messiah his son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little blessed are all those who put their trust in him jesus addressed this issue directly with the jewish religious leaders of his day in matthew chapter 22 verse 41 And the Pharisees were all gathered together, and Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Uh, Whose son is he? And here again... Jesus holding the view that he was and is uh, the Son of God. They holding the view that he will merely be uh, a, a man, uh, a son of men like uh, Moses. So he said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. In other words, he is going to merely be a man descended from David. No deity, no Godhead, nothing. And Jesus then said to them, Well, and he quotes now the great messianic psalm, Psalm 110, and he said to them, "'How then does David, uh, by the Spirit, call the Messiah Lord, saying, "'The Lord,' that is God the Father, said to my Lord,' speaking of the Messiah, "'Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool.'" He said, Jesus went on to say, if David calls him, that is the Messiah, Lord, then how can he merely be his son? In other words, if David calls Messiah Lord, then Messiah has to be something more than merely a physical descendant, of David. David must have recognized him to be someone greater than himself, and David was the greatest king in the history of the nation of Israel. Messiah is greater than a mere man, that is, that he is divine. And they had nothing to say to Jesus as he confronted them with that passage of Scripture. Of course, the most famous verse in the entire Bible affirms this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, the Messiah must be divine because if he's not divine, he's not sinless. And if he is not sinless, then he cannot save because he would need a Savior as much as the rest of us. There's a lot that hinges upon the deity of Christ and the fact that he was indeed the Son of God. Of course, the God the Father chimed in very authoritatively. And all of this at the Mount of Transfiguration, when he interrupted Peter and his ramblings there, and he said, "This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, hear ye him," and confirming Jesus to be the Son of God. Now, their determined belief that the Messiah will not be divine. Uh, this by the Jews, but simply a great and charismatic man capable of miracles like Moses. It leaves them completely vulnerable, vulnerable. You know what I'm saying? Vulnerable to being deceived by the Antichrist. And this is exactly what Jesus warned when he spoke to the religious leaders in John chapter 5, verse 43. He said, I have come. In my Father's name, and you do not receive me, if another comes in his own name, speaking of the Antichrist, him you will receive. That verse is so heavy, and it's been in the Bible for 2,000 years, and it's as if it had never been written. Well, if the Jewish people, by and large, reject Jesus as the Messiah... And if they believe that Messiah is merely going to be a great man, then the logical question then to ask and, and, and becomes, how in the world will you identify the Messiah when he comes? And part of their answer is he will rebuild the temple and he will allow the sacrifices and the worship to be reestablished there. And it is exactly what the Antichrist will come on the scene and give them permission to do. They are completely set up for the deception that is coming. And there are many, many in Israel today that believe the Messiah is coming and is coming soon. Uh, Several years ago in the city of Jerusalem, when we were there, there were banners all over the old city that were declaring, Messiah is coming soon, I have a cup in my office that uh, you could purchase at that time. Someone purchased it for me and, and gave it to me as a gift that had the saying uh, in the Hebrew there, Messiah is coming. And there is that recognition on the part of the Jews that uh, history is becoming kind of climactic and, uh, and they're looking for the Messiah to come soon. And uh, Jesus, Messiah, Jesus is coming soon, uh, and his second coming. But unfortunately for the Jews who have rejected him as the true Messiah, the, Christ is go- uh, the Antichrist is going to come first, and they will unfortunately think that he is their promised Messiah. Now, the third thing that the Antichrist will do in his... Uh, seven-year period, and famously is that he will require everyone to receive a mark on their right hand or their forehead, without which no one will be able to buy or to sell uh, during the tribulation period. And this is recorded in Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 and 17. When people take the mark during the tribulation period, it's more than just kind of like heading down to the tattoo parlor and uh, just having something or a chip put under their skin or whatever form this ends up uh, taking. This is more than just, okay, this is what you got to do now to buy and sell, and so let's get down there and do that. Taking the mark will Uh, actually designate a person, and they'll know this to be true, it will designate a person as a uh, devotee or as a true follower, a worshiper uh, of the Antichrist. It will involve that kind of an attitude toward him. Again, at the abomination that causes desolation, he is going to claim, declare himself to be God. He's going to demand to be worshiped uh, as God. And not only by the Jews, but by the entire world. And people are going to know exactly what they're doing when they take that mark during the Great Tribulation. And, uh, and during that tribulation period, uh, the importance of not taking the mark is so significant that God sends angelic messengers uh, from heaven in order to warn people against doing that. Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. At this point of the great tribulation period, the light is going to begin to go on for a lot of people, not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. A lot of people are going to realize that they've been fooled at this point, Uh, an innumerable number of people will put their faith in Christ at this particular point in time, in Jesus, uh, for salvation. Uh, People will refuse to take the mark, and as a result of it, they'll be doomed to death by starvation or very active persecution and martyrdom. They'll be hunted down and executed for failing to worship. Uh, the the beast. You think about how small the world has become for someone like an antichrist to track people, uh, to get rid of enemies. I was reading an article uh, just about a month ago uh, that stated that in the world that we live in today, there are at least 250 million cameras That are recording everything that people do in the world. This is just government stuff. We're not talking about people with their phone or home security systems. I mean, the world is a very, very small place, and it will be hard to run uh, from a person who is this demonic and the kind of uh, control of the systems that... Uh, that he will have. And so he will look to wipe out anyone that doesn't engage in the worship of him. And ultimately, the Antichrist will be captured at the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, it's really the un It's not like it's some big battle. Jesus speaks something, and the three armies that have gathered against him there will be completely wiped out, one of those armies being the Antichrist. And uh, so Jesus will uh, wipe out those armies, Antichrist will be captured at the battle of Armageddon at Jesus' second coming. He will then be cast into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone to await the white throne judgment that occurs at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now at this point in our sermon, someone might ask, um, well, if we as Christians are not going to see the Antichrist, then why would we bother being interested in him at all? And you taking up all of our time to talk about this this morning. Well, I think it, it, it's helpful. You know, some people look at the end times, and so far we're talking about it on a geopolitical level and so forth. Uh, just the, even the term geopolitical puts some people to a sleep in a second. They just hear it, and it's like this, and it's like... You know, it's like you're heading in for surgery and they say, okay, count to one, Geopoli- <laughs> and they're gone. And so today I want to look at it from more of a sociological conditioning of the world sociologically uh, to be set up for this man of sin who is coming and the realization that Jesus is coming is going to proceed, coming for the rapture, precede all of this and to see how the world is being set up for the deception that is to come. First of all, the world is set up for deception simply by virtue of rejecting the truth of God and of his word. And so you've got our nation and really uh, the world in general is progressively rejecting the Word of God, His commandments, His definitions of right and wrong. And the thing about that is, is while people are free to do that, uh, currently there are consequences uh, to doing that. Because once you reject the truth, then all you have left to believe in are lies, And lies, because they are not based in truth or in reality, will always at least lead to disappointment and sometimes and often uh, even to destruction. And nowhere are the stakes higher regarding truth and lies than when they have to do with spiritual things and with eternal truth. Christianity is not merely a religion. And the way that people think and say, yes, it's one of the great monotheistic, here, what problems I'm having today, monotheistic religions of the world and so forth, and they put it in their mind. That's not how God uh, views that. Christianity and the Word of God, it's the truth. It's the truth. It is the truth of God and from God, the truth about what God is like, the truth about ourselves, the truth about salvation, the truth about how to live life as God has created us to live life, and so much more. And when you reject the truth of the Bible, you have now also completely lost the ability to expose a lie or to recognize a lie, because the Word of God is the plumb line of truth, It's the straight stick that exposes what is crooked. Uh, D.L. Moody famously said the best way to show that a stick is crooked is not to argue about it or spend time denouncing it, but to lay a straight stick alongside it. And that's what the Bible does it lays a straight stick alongside all of the ideas. And theories of man, so called truth of man, and it exposes it to be either a truth or a lie. Uh, someone has said that uh, crooked walls hate plumb lines, (laughs) and they do. And that's why people move away from the Word of God. Jesus said the whole thing is not some big intellectual problem with God or the existence of God or Jesus is the Messiah or the Savior or any of this. He said in John chapter 3, people love darkness and they don't want to come to the light. As simple as that. They don't want to get near a plumb line that exposes them for who they are until finally we get sick of the life that we're living and now we're willing to be honest about ourselves and about what God says uh, about uh, all of us. But when a world uh, or a nation or even an individual person rejects the truth of God, then you have set yourself up, and they have, for deception, including the coming deception of the Antichrist, a very, very slick and cunning liar. You see, there are always consequences to violating God's moral and spiritual laws. Always. There are always consequences to violating His laws. And as surely as there are consequences to violating God's law of gravity by saying, I don't believe it, I don't believe in the law of gravity, and then jumping from the top of a ten-story building, there are consequences to violating God's moral and spiritual laws as well. Some time ago I was listening to a fairly recent teaching by that great Bible teacher Warren Wearsby, And he lamented the fact that in his experience, that the current generation uh, in the college that he was associated with, and so he's talking about college-age people in American culture, he he said his experience is uh, that they believe two things. Number one, they do not believe in absolutes. And number two, they do not believe in consequences. That the younger generation, increasingly, because of the indoctrination of the culture and so forth, and, and again, the indoctrination is to uh, prepare for an antichrist one day, the indoctrination of the devil, they do not believe, number one, in absolutes, and number two, they do not believe in consequences. But of course, the, both of those are positions of absolute folly. There is such a thing as truth in life. There is such a thing as absolutes. And God knows that. Even if mankind loses sight of that for a while, and there are consequences to violating the truth, always. It is inescapable. And just because I don't believe those things doesn't mean those things stop happening. To refuse to believe Uh, that, And, and to refuse to believe that there is truth and that there are consequences to violating that truth, and the truth being God's truth, is... A, to set myself up for a deception that is headed for a very catastrophic end. And, and may I say that the younger generation is not the only one that's susceptible to this. This is permeating even into the oldest uh, uh, generation within our culture. You know, the Antichrist name, it comes from two Greek words, Christos. Uh, which means Christ or Messiah, the anointed one, and then anti, which means against. And so his name means the one against Christ, the one against God's anointed. And I think it is very, very important to realize that what Satan is after in all of this is not the world's money, not the world's wealth, not the world's power. He has all of that in spades. He is the God of this age. He is the God of this world. He's not interested supremely in any of those things at all. The devil's whole beef is with God and his rebellion against God. He has no hope, the Bible teaches, of heaven for himself, so what he commits himself to is attempting to lead as many men, women, and children into hell with him as he can. And that's the whole purpose of his use of the Antichrist. He's not interested in world domination. What he's interested in is offering people a lying alternative to the true Christ and the salvation that is found in that Christ, found in Jesus, that they might then bite on that lure and join him in his rebellion against God. And then that, that same, those same people would end up in the same eternal lake of fire that he has no hope of escaping, but he knows that we still do have hope of escaping through faith in Christ. His whole intent, and you must understand this, his whole intent is to keep you personally from coming to know God and to follow God through the Christ that God the Father has sent into the world to make knowing him possible. And if he is successful at that, in doing so in your life, then in your life he has been the Antichrist. You see, this is not merely national. This is not merely international. This is personal. This is what he is trying to do to you. And it's important that you don't fall for it, but that you receive Christ, the true Christ, receive Jesus, and begin to follow him this morning. Now realize this, please, that with every passing day, and this is the passing days that you and I are in the middle of this moment in human history. With every passing day, as the world rejects some truth of God for some theory of man or some belief of man related to that same subject, it's only further setting the world up to ultimately be deceived by the Antichrist. To reject truth is not a harmless activity It is a very dangerous business and never more dangerous than when it involves man's rejection of God's truth, of God's moral and spiritual truth. To the degree that the world, and they're very uh, arrogant, many of them today, very flippant, very blasphemous, and open-faced about their rejection of the Bible and biblical truth and moving forth in their own ways. And what they don't realize is that the degree to which they do that, they are setting the world up for the Antichrist and setting themselves up for the deception that is to come. That's why Solomon wrote, there is a way that seems right to man, but the end is the way of death. I think a second thing to keep an eye on in all of this is is the continued concentration of power uh, in the world, to watch the expansion of government and how how power is increasingly become uh, wielded by a smaller and smaller uh, group of people uh, as our nation and the world as a whole increasingly rejects God his again his definitions of right and wrong his commandments and then replaces that with their own definitions as our our nation and the world becomes increasingly hostile toward the institutions of God, which are designed to bring a very needed stability and holiness into a world that is very fallen. The institution of marriage as he defines it the institution of family, as he defines it, the institution of the church. And as you undermine, and even as is happening today, you attack these institutions that produce needed stability in the world, then the inevitable consequence is that you're going to destabilize the world at its very foundation. And the world must, as a result, begin to fragment and... Unravel, And the more it rejects God, the worse things become because only God, His Word, His commandments, His wisdom, His institutions can hold all of this together. There is not a nation in the world, not even the whole world put together that possesses the wisdom and the power and the wealth to replace God and to do His job in this world. And as the... God-rejecting world increasingly fragments and as it increasingly unravels because it's unwilling to look at the problems for what they are at their core and that is that they are spiritual and moral problems that can only be rectified by repenting and getting right with God and because they don't want to give up their definitions of right and wrong and give up the sins that those definitions protect Despite all of the terrible consequences of those sin, their solution then is to look to government to fix all of the problems that are produced by all of this. And so their solution becomes more and more government, and government that is empowered far beyond what is healthy. Because if you reject God, you reject His Word, you reject His commandments, His wisdom, His institutions, then you're going to need all the cops you can put on the street and more. You will never be able to hire enough of them. You're going to need more prisons than you can ever build. You are going to need to create more and more laws, and then you're going to have to create more and more laws after that, and you're going to have to create more and more laws after that. And if you're going to undermine God's institutions of marriage and family, and you're going to redefine it, then you're going to need public schools not only to be a learning center, but now to take the responsibility of parenting these children as well. Until one day you wake up and you find that government is attempting to do in this world what only God can. And worse, until government has a place in people's lives that should belong to God alone. And then one day it will seem like a very small thing to turn the whole thing over to a very, very charismatic leader who rides in on a white horse and promises to fix all of the problems of the world that have been created by rebellion against God. And then it will become a literal hell upon earth. Again, Disobedience to God's commandments always lead to problems, and big disobedience leads to big problems, and lots of disobedience leads to lots of problems, which then leads to larger government and more empowered government. Why? Because it's the only thing big enough to even try and address The problems that are occurring socially and morally and spiritually within the culture as a result. And this cycle is going on in our world by the day before our very eyes, and it is a setup for the Antichrist who is coming. Third, I think, is important to watch is increased desperation in the world. I think especially uh, economic desperation. Again, I don't think that ten kings in, uh, in a revived Roman Empire are going to turn over that kind of pover- uh, power and sovereignty to uh, anyone except they are somehow desperate because of a severe economic problem that may exist at the time. And I think that uh, we live in a world today where if a person doesn't have the Holy Spirit in them and they aren't born again, I think increasingly, uh, the, as I observe the culture all around me, that people would honestly say, I'd follow the devil himself if he promised me a good job and economic security. You think about how many people in the world today would strike just such a bargain, especially in tough economic times. It's the world that we live in. And increasingly, you watch the national elections that are going on now, and the elections of the world as a whole, really, and what's the focus? What's the emphasis? A return to morality, which is at the core of all of our problems, a return to righteousness. No. It's all about money. It's all about the economy. That's what we've got to fix, As if an economy can exist independent of a deeper foundation. And again, as the world destabilizes, people are going to grow more and more desperate for a solution. Any leader who appears to have the charisma and the skill to lead them uh, into safety and prosperity. I look at our culture, too, in the realm of the current uh, cult of personality in our world today, and I see how fascinated, how mesmerized people are by stars, by charisma. We're even uh, fascinated uh, by and make people famous who are famous for simply being famous. Uh, Paris Hilton and the Kardashians are kind of like the, uh, you know, the poster children for all of this. No cure to the common cold. They don't deliver mail on a daily basis. They don't, you know, pave a road. There's nothing constructive being done at all through their lives. And yet, how many people are following uh, them like that? If you're related to them, I'm sorry for putting them down here today. But they are the illustrations, the graphic illustrations of this development within the culture. How fascinated people are over people who are charismatic and famous for just being charismatic and famous. And we see how easily people can be manipulated today by this kind of thing, by the mass media and the social media that follows it. It's always been true, but I think it's increasing. I mean, you look again at our current presidential election, and it seems to me at this point it's almost entirely about personalities as opposed to policy positions of the candidates. And maybe that's going to change after the conventions. But uh, what do these two candidates stand for and what do they believe in outside of maybe one or two issues? Where do they want to take us as a country? How, even more importantly, how do they want uh, intend to do that? But that's not the focus of the campaigns. And I think to myself as this kind of uh, personality is being put to the forefront rather than policy and these kind of things, I think they must know something. These are not stupid people. They must know something. And what they probably know is that people simply don't care about issues and policy, by and large, in this age, that this really is all about Personality. And that's a horrifying thought, but it doesn't seem far fetched to me in watching the world that I watch around me. And one day the Antichrist is going to come on the scene with personality plus. And I don't think he'll have to do much, uh, have much of a problem wowing the entire world today. And he certainly won't watch, uh, once Christians uh, are removed. I'd like to develop this more, but I have to leave it. Fifth and finally, I think it's good to keep an eye on the continued elevation of feelings and emotions over the mind and over logic and rationale within the world as a means of testing truth or determining truth. Famously, the very terrific uh, uh, Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias observed concerning the younger generation today in the Western world. This is the question that he posed. How do you connect with a generation that hears with its eyes and thinks with its feelings? How do you connect with a generation that hears with its eyes and thinks with its feelings? And uh, what he has observed? concerning the younger generation is again increasingly true of everyone. Thinking, logic, rationale are out in the world today. Feelings are in. When I was younger, it wasn't uncommon for one person to ask another person, well, what do you think about that? Well, what do you think about this? But that statement's almost gone the way of the dodo bird today, replaced by what? Well, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about that? We don't even ask people to think about these things anymore. What we want is coming from the emotion and not from the rationale, not uh, from the mind. Feelings are now more important than thinking. But this shift dramatically increases our capacity to be deceived by others. If you work in sales, you know for a fact It's your life that if you can get a person emotional about a decision and a purchase as opposed to making a decision based upon facts or logic, you're far more likely to make a sale. That's why when you go into the model homes that are being, uh, you know, displayed in the neighborhood and so forth and you go in, that's why they have the hot chocolate chip cookies cooking in the oven so that when you walk into that house... They're trying to hit you emotionally. This feels like home. I like chocolate chip cookies. Or they'll do popcorn or whatever. They're trying to pull a person in emotionally. The psychology behind all of this is everywhere. In every store you go into, every website you go on, all of this is going on. And there is the recognition that the easiest way to manipulate people, even to doing what they don't want to do, is to tap into their emotions rather than into their logic. And how set up, Will a population like that be when the Antichrist shows up with a personality as big as the world and with the charisma to move people emotionally that will make Hitler look like a third grader and then combined with the ability to perform signs and wonders and miracles? I think all of it's uh, food for thought concerning the demonic conditioning of the world that is happening all around us today concerning the preparation for the coming Antichrist, with the knowledge for us as we view these things, not that we will one day then see the Antichrist, but to realize the rapture comes before it. So to look at things not just geopolitically, and and so forth, but to look at it uh, sociologically and to look at how individuals and emotions and minds are being prepared for exactly what the Bible has to say. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, so much of what we have talked about this morning is the cause for alarm, alarm and so many people, and in so many of your people. And I pray and we pray that you would use your Word this morning, that as we see these trends that are so clear to us because of your Spirit and because of your Word, that these things will not produce alarm within us or panic or fear, but, Lord, it will produce within us a a desire to be on guard, that we do not get pulled into these deceptions, to walk closely with you, to give your word the authority that it deserves within our life and quick obedience to your commandments, to recognize how dangerous this world is, not just uh, politically and not just militarily and in terms of violence, but how dangerous it's become morally and spiritually. And Lord, to just walk that walk with you in the midst of all of it so we are not seduced as well. But then, Lord, to look at all of this and to realize that this is far from just happening, but you have prophesied of it, and it merely means that Jesus' return is that much closer. And so, this is the world, at least as I see it, Lord, that we are in every day. We ask that you would continue to bless us and use us as your light, as carriers of the truth and the gospel into all of the world and all of the places that you take us, bringing light and hope, Lord, and the the truth about you into our neighborhoods and into our workplaces and schools and into all of our situations, knowing that we were once as blind as as the blindest of people are even today to all of these things. We pray that in these last days you would give great power to your gospel and to your truth, that it would be able to penetrate through all of this indoctrination and all of this uh, preparation of uh, demonic preparation of the devil against the truth of God and the setting up for the coming Antichrist. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.